Well, good morning, Applewood family. Well, that was enthusiastic. Good morning to you, too. <laughs> oh, mission trips are so, so special. They just, without a doubt, they, they broaden our, our, our horizons, our, our view, our perspective upon the kingdom of God. Good stuff. If you ever read his book, um, Embraced by the Spirit, <clears throat> Chuck Swindoll shares these words. They may sound familiar to you. He said, by the time I graduated from seminary, I had many convictions and few questions, especially regarding the Holy Spirit. But during a lifetime of ministry that has taken me around the United States and to many countries in the world, I have found that the work of the Holy Spirit continually keeps me off balance. I'm not alone in that. Those in church leadership seem afraid sometimes that the Spirit is going to do something we can't explain. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> says, I've found that that disturbs many folks, but I'll admit it energizes me. He says, I've come to realize that, that there are dimensions of the Spirit's ministry I have never tapped in places in this study about which I know very little. He says, I'm on a strong learning curve. I have witnessed a dynamic power in the Spirit's presence that I long to know more of firsthand. And I now have questions and a strong interest in many of the things of the Spirit that I once felt were settled. Good words. And there is, there's probably no story in Scripture that, that better illustrates the, the wonderful mystery and the power of the Spirit than Acts 2. Probably a familiar story for many of us, often referred to as the, uh, the chapter in which we find the birthday of the church, Pentecost. Now, now remember... The church, the word church in the original language means called out, refers to a, a group of people or to, to an assembly. And, and at Pentecost, the Spirit of God identified and called out his people in a pretty significant way. You know the story. Jesus had ascended back to the Father. The disciples were all gathered together in Jerusalem. They were following Jesus' instructions to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's pretty amazing that they were actually following his instructions. And when Jesus gave those, those, those instructions, I don't think any of the disciples said it. There's no record. But I'll bet they wondered, well, how are we going to know when the Spirit arrives? And oh, by the way, who or what exactly is the Spirit? No record of that. It was 50 days after Passover, and time for one of the, the three major sort of, sort of pillar foundational festivals that were celebrated by the Jews, Pentecost, also known in the Old Testament as the Festival of First Fruits, sometimes referred to as the Feast of Weeks. And in the first century, some scholars say that it was considered to be the anniversary of the giving of the law to Moses and to the Israelites. And so along with 
the bringing of gifts that the people of God would bring at Pentecost, it was also a time for an annual renewal of commitment to the Mosaic Law. So, when you think about it, it's pretty cool for the Spirit to come crashing into the lives of those first believers in the way that the Spirit did. When, when Jews from all over the world are gathered in Jerusalem for celebration, to, to mark the giving of the law of God and, and to, to bring gifts, special gifts to God, it's as if the Spirit came and said, Ah, oh, let me give you a gift. And oh, by the way, we're going to do things a little differently from now on. Buckle your seatbelts. The Holy Spirit is in the driver's seat. And so Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that there was a sound like a blowing violent wind that came from heaven. It filled the whole house that they were gathered in. And then what seemed to be tongues of fire, Luke describes, <clears throat> that separated and came to rest on each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in other tongues. The word there is literally languages as the Spirit enabled them. If you know Garrison Keeler, Lake Wobegon storyteller, he was asked one time about five books in his life that he thinks everybody should read. The book of Acts was one of them. And his one sentence summary of what happens there was this. The flames lit on their little heads and bravely and dangerously went they onward. That is a great summary of the book of Acts. And dangerously and bravely went they onward. Luke tells us that there were Jews from every nation under heaven. That was all of the known world in that day. Every nation under heaven, and they were staying in Jerusalem. Oh, how convenient. Pentecost was an important festival. And so when they heard the sound of the violent wind, he tells us that a crowd gathered, and we are going to assume that they gathered outside the house where the noise was present. And these Jews that had come from other countries heard these Galilean disciples. Galilean. Galilee was a backwoods kind of a locale for most of the people who lived in Jerusalem. Not, not a place that you would visit as a tourist. We might, in some American vernacular, call it the other side of the tracks. These uneducated Galileans began speaking languages that they would not have known, likely would not have been taught. You get the feeling that maybe God is up to something here? Ah, oh, I know, you know the story, you know the story. Many of the foreign Jews, Luke tells us, were amazed and perplexed. And Luke writes that they asked one another, some of them, what does this mean? Some, however, he says, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Two responses from those who were hearing the proclamation of truth in their own native language. Karen, can we put that slide up? You did it already. What does this mean? And they have had too much wine. I want you to talk with a neighbor about those two responses. 
What is the heart or the spirit behind each one of those responses? Go ahead. Just take a minute or two. Talk with someone. Determine what's behind those statements. Okay. What do you think? What's behind these these questions? What's what's the spirit there or the, the heart condition that is asking those questions or making that statement? What do you think? Okay. Excellent. Open, closed. What else? Someone put it differently? Okay. Good observation. There you go. And they were impressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. I like that. Good observation. Do you want to preach the rest of my sermon? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, good, good. Okay. Yeah? Oh, it's very medic. Okay, okay, all right. So conviction there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Could be interest, could be some fear. No, I never do that. <laughs> yeah, other people. Yeah, it's different from what we've experienced, so can't be anything to it. Yeah. Anyone else? Good observations. You know, I, I couldn't help but think that these two statements are sort of a, a, a reminder, if you will, for us, you know, reading this story a couple thousand years later, of the, uh, the categories, perhaps. Categories... Um, types of response that people have to, for our interest this morning, for the truth of the gospel, God's redemptive activity in the world, interest or disinterest, open or closed, fear or, or comfortable. And basically, there are, there are just kind of those two categories and yet there are, there are grades of responses in between, but it seems as if most people are, are on their way toward one or the other, and there's, there's movement, there's, there's flux there. And I think that it can, it can change because of circumstances in people's lives, as well as God using those circumstances and, and words and conversations, experiences uh, to, to capture an individual's heart. But I think it's important for us to see this here primarily because this is the very first missionary outreach activity of the church. Church has only been in existence for a couple of minutes at this point, I'm assuming, and, and right away, right away, God does this phenomenal miracle through his people, and there is resistance. That's the nature of the reality in the spiritual realm. There is the truth 
and the presence of who God is and his redemptive work in his world, and there is resistance to it. And lots of folks moving back and forth in between those two poles. One commentator puts it this way. He says, if everyone is pleased with what we do, we have probably not been truly faithful to God. Because the gospel and God's truth are so radically different to the thinking of the world that those who follow him should expect some to oppose them. Now that's probably not new news. You know, if you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, you have learned to expect opposition, that, that not everyone thinks that our good news is so good. Now our text this morning follows up in Acts 2, selected verses that Luke records for us of, of what happens next. And I, I think that these verses are, are so significant because they, they bring into focus, uh, again, Peter. We get to see how Peter responds to this. Let's stand and read our text together. <clears throat> Here we go. Then Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, <clears throat> put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow. 
My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Whew. Go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> what? <laughs> Amen to that. What a text. Tell me, who gave this speech? Peter. Peter. Remember Peter? <clears throat> That's why we're here in these few chapters of Acts for just the first few Sundays, for just a few Sundays together. The resurrection has happened. This is post-resurrection Peter. Peter, the coward and the denier, has become Peter the restored. Peter, <clears throat> who met Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and was restored by the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. That song has been in my mind all week. Again, that song has been in my mind. Oh, Luke tells us that in response to those who were saying, they've had too much wine, Peter stood up and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Now, I have to tell you, in my mind, I have this image. Peter stands up, and the, the other 11 disciples kind of go, oh. and they sort of look at one another with that look that says, this is not going to end well. <clears throat> and Peter speaks. Joe Stoll tells a story from his years of being the president of Moody, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. He and his wife were at one of their son's basketball games, and he says the officiating was just atrocious. And of course it was. Anytime my sons played soccer and they lost, the officiating was atrocious. And that's what was going on in this basketball game. <clears throat> and then one particular call irked him because it was made on his son, and it was a ridiculous call. And Stoll says, as I rose to my feet to express my opinion in very clear terms what I thought about that official's call, I felt my wife's hand on my arm and I heard her voice say, Joseph, you are the president of Moody Bible Institute. <laughs> Stoll says, I sat down. <clears throat> Do you think John was sitting next to Peter? Oh, Pete, Pete, take a deep breath. Let's think about this for a minute. Maybe someone else could do this. This is Peter. But instead of saying what he may have been thinking, something like, come on, drunk at nine in the morning, you idiots, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. No, his response was a very reasoned, un-Peter-like response. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. That might happen later, but no, he didn't say that. <clears throat> it's only nine in the morning. And then Peter, the uneducated Galilean fisherman, using a text from the prophet Joel, strings together for them God's purpose 
in what they have just witnessed. The life and the death of Jesus, and he ties that marvelously into the words of King David from Psalm 28. And then he ends with this statement. This is Peter. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. And what happened? Luke tells us they were all just smitten. They were, they were cut to the heart. What do we do? Repent and be baptized, said Peter, for the forgiveness of sins. 3,000 people repented and were baptized that day. And you know what happened next? All 11 disciples are high-fiving and chest-bumping. <laughs> this was remarkable. This is remarkable. Hey, and just an FYI for you, Sharice and I, when we were in Jerusalem, <clears throat> we, uh, last summer we saw in the ancient part of the city, near the south wall, there are archaeological remains of enormous pools multiple pools and large pools, which would have been used for ritual cleansing for those who were coming to Jerusalem at the time of a big feast like this. Those who were bringing offerings, those who would be going into the temple courts, they would have stopped and, and washed themselves and, and, and just ceremonially splashed themselves with water. Where would 3,000 people be baptized on this day? I'm going to say right there, in those big pools, right near the south wall of the city, where all kinds of people were walking by. God has never intended for those who are his people to be quiet about it. Christianity is not a private thing. For those who love God and have been restored to right relationship with Him through Jesus, God's intention is for them to get the word out, to make it known, to be public with their faith. And that, my friends, that's what Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit is all about. Spirit is the Father's gift that Jesus told his followers to wait for in Jerusalem, the power that would, would come upon them. And man did it. Suddenly, <clears throat> Peter the coward becomes Peter the confident. The one who was constantly putting his foot in his mouth was suddenly an orator. Fisherman turned theologian and teacher the one who lied about even knowing Jesus now proclaims him as Lord and Christ. Now remember something else. Fishermen were typically uneducated. They were one of the lower classes. And the scrolls of the Old Testament, the only scripture of the first century Jew, those were kept in the temple. Peter was not reading from those scrolls when he gave his sermon and quoted those long passages 
from the Psalms and from the prophet Joel, we can assume that he had not prepared for this. He didn't come with a sermon in his pocket. In fact, Peter didn't do sermons. He probably showed up smelling like fish. That, I think, is what is so miraculous about this story. There's no doubt in my mind that the miracle of tongues at Pentecost was amazing. But I can't help thinking that that the miracle of Peter's transformed tongue and demeanor was equally amazing. The ability to speak foreign languages was fantastic. But so was the miracle of speaking the truth boldly, with confidence, to a mixed crowd of those who were interested and those who were not. And I'm going to speculate, just me, speculation, Peter probably didn't have those Old Testament passages memorized. I imagine the other disciples asking Peter, where in the world did that come from? Answer? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doing what Jesus had told them the Spirit would do. He will remind you of me. He will teach you of me. He will remind you of all the things that I have taught you. Jesus would have spent time with his disciples, I'm sure, showing them the Old Testament texts or talking them through, walking them through. Oral tradition was how teaching was done in those days. And as I said last week, I believe that the restoring love of Jesus on the shore of the Galilean Sea was the starting point in the transformation process for Peter. Peter racked with guilt, racked with fear, racked with uncertainty, just couldn't imagine what it was going to be like to be with Jesus again. When he met him on the shore, Jesus restored him with great love. The gift of the Holy Spirit, I think, in this text, Acts 2, was confirmation that Peter was, in fact, deeply loved and belonged to Jesus. And I think, I think this is where the lesson is for us, my brothers and sisters. We who are, are post-resurrection people, those who, like Peter, have failed miserably, In so many places, remember, the comparison is not with one another. The comparison is with the holiness of God. And if that is our standard as it should be, we are all miserable failures. Peter is just singled out for our learning purposes. As post-resurrection people, by faith in Christ, we understand that we have been redeemed by him and we have been restored to that relationship for which we were created, relationship with God. And so for Peter, the Spirit 
in this situation prompted him to respond to a statement that wasn't true. They've had too much wine. Ridiculous statement. But instead of being Peter, the Peter that we would would expect, perhaps lashing out at those who spoke, he countered it with the truth. Reasonably controlled, but with conviction. And, did you notice what Peter didn't say? These were all Jews, remember. They were Jews from Jerusalem. They were Jews from many other countries that had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. Many of them, like Peter, many of them perhaps from even higher classes in their their societies, many of them had grown up knowing those same truths that, that Peter had grown up learning. Many of them had, had spent their Sabbath days, probably like Peter, in the synagogue, hearing the prophets read. He never said to them, you should know these things. What's wrong with you? Where were you guys when they taught this stuff in Sunday school? You dorks? It's clear as can be. No condescension from Peter. Great conviction. He told them the truth as he now understood it. All right. True confessions. There are things that people believe in our culture, in our world, that contradict the truth of who God is and what he has revealed to us. Quite frankly, I think are stupid. And some of those stupid beliefs are not just insignificant stupid beliefs. They have moral consequences that can have devastating results in the lives of both those who believe them as well as others that are impacted by their stupid beliefs. A couple of years ago, The Economist magazine ran an article and it was entitled, Yes, I'd Lie to You, The Post-Truth World. Sociologists and cultural gurus analyze the fact that we are living in a culture where truth no longer matters or that, that truth is a relative term. What's true for you may not be true for me. Well, that defies the meaning of truth. Truth is truth. And it's the same for everyone in terms of ultimately. The article analyzed the dishonesty that's wreaking havoc in politics, in journalism, in social media, and many other areas of our common life together. One expert quoted in the article said, right now, it pays to be outrageous, but not truthful. It's a telling statement. 
telling statement. We, the people of God who have been given the truth of God, live in a society where truth moves around and can be hard for some folks to pin down. I want you to do an activity with me for just 60 seconds or less. I want you to think of a person or persons in your life that fall into that category. Someone who believes something to be true that is stupid. Now, if that person's sitting next to you, I'd rather you not talk to them about it here, okay? I want you to think of someone... <clears throat> And then I want you to, to think in terms of, of your response to that person. How does that person's belief that is stupid make you feel? What kind of emotions does that evoke in you? Perhaps you can think of conversations that you've had. Persons that believe things that are outrageous, Things that can, can even be maddening. Especially when it relates to, at least for, this is for me, the truth about who I believe God to be and how he's revealed himself in scripture. Someone comes along with some cockamamie belief about that and it just riles me. Do you know how much good that riling of my spirit does very little. Unless it causes me to remember, oh yeah, not everybody believes the same thing I do about God. And the fact that I believe what I do about him is a precious gift from him, that's what I believe about grace. It at some place in my life opened my eyes and my heart. <clears throat> Here's what I get concerned about. This is not guy venting his spleen, I promise. God's truth, my brothers and sisters, God's truth is not to be used as a weapon with which to beat people up. God's truth is to be lived and communicated in a way that is appropriate, that reflects the understanding of those for whom the knowledge of the truth of God is a gift. And like Peter, that starts with an honest realization that I don't love God nearly as much as I should. But, like Jesus expressed to Peter on the Sea of Galilee shore, Peter, your love doesn't measure up to the way that I love you, but I will take you where you are. How humbling is that? How amazing is that? Same is true for those 
in our lives, be they a person that we know or a group and something that they stand for that just, just really gets us going. We need to pray. And we need to, when opportunity comes as the Spirit prompts, to speak out of humility, with conviction, in a way that reflects our understanding of God's amazing grace to us. That, my brothers and sisters, is truth presented in a way that I think the Spirit of God then begins to use and to work. This Pentecost lesson is a reminder to us that truth needs to be spoken. It does need to be spoken. Regardless of whether or not the audience is receptive or hostile. But it doesn't necessarily have to be spoken by us in every situation. But if we sense that the Spirit is prompting us to step up, <laughs> you think Peter sat there and just thought, no, no, really, not me, not me, I can't do No, no. But he did. I'm guessing that he might have, Zach. I'm guessing he might have. There's a time lapse there that's not given to us. <laughs> got there, got there. Yeah. But when the Spirit prompts, He calls us to speak in a way that is not angry, in a way that is not boastful, in a way that is not condescending. And it, and it may be just, just a word or two or a sentence or two doesn't have to be a sermon, but it could be. We never know. But if we are obedient to the Spirit's prompting, I believe we can count on Him to, to give us just what is needed to present the truth that is needed in that situation. And it's important to remember, too, that <clears throat> we don't have to convince. That's the Spirit's work. The Spirit takes the truth and drives it into a heart and convinces. We are just the voice that speaks up for truth. We speak the truth out of great confidence that we are loved and will be used by Jesus. So praise team, come on up. And as you do, let me relate a quick story and then I want to pray for us. <clears throat> Rick told me, Rick Baldacci told me a story. And some of you who know Rick know that he has been exercising with a friend faithfully for, gosh, 10 plus years. <clears throat> and they exercise together several mornings a week. And this friend is a hardcore atheist. And Rick has just been his friend, prayed for him spoken the truth into his life many times with no response. And to God's glory and not Rick's, as he orchestrates the circumstances in this friend's life, <clears throat> the disease of a sister-in-law has really 
caused him to think differently. One recent conversation that Rick had with this friend as they were leaving and going their separate ways, his friend looked at Rick and said, you know, crosses my mind that I could be wrong about all of this. The truth has a way of getting through when the one who proclaims it does so in a spirit of humility and wonder and conviction. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for who you are, for your amazing love and grace that for so many in our world makes no sense And yet for those of us who are the recipients of that grace, oh man, we don't want to go a day or a moment without it. And so we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it reveals to us about you. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you for for his revelation, his coming into this world to be our Savior, to take upon himself our sins that we might become the righteousness of God. I pray that like Peter, recipients of the gift of your Holy Spirit, to empower us to witness, to speak out, to speak up, May we do that with a sense of conviction and humility and hope that you in your goodness and grace will will use the truth to move those whom we love and care about, those whom we don't know, those whom perhaps we don't care about that much, that your spirit would use the truth coming from our lives to convince others of the truth of who Jesus is. We commit ourselves to you. Pentecost, post-resurrection people, filled with the Spirit of God, given us the power to witness. May we be faithful to speak up when he leads us to do so, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.